they wrote it 30 years ago that we should Islamize all the sectors of the society very methodically. They told us what they were going to do and they did it. With your democratic laws, we will colonize you, and with our Quranic laws, we will dominate you. This rather bellicose warning for Europe came from a 2002 speech by Yusuf al-Qadawi. Now, al-Qadawi is one of the key intellectual leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is going to be today's topic. This quote, I feel, is a great insight on what the Brotherhood is. It's a religious and conservative reaction to modernity, that was launched nearly a century ago in 1928 in Egypt by Hassan al-Banna. But I also think that quote is a great insight into the modus operandi. The Muslim Brotherhood works in the shadows and builds its strength slowly through a complex maze of sister organization to push its narrative and its pawns while always making sure to stay on the right side of the law. Now, Two decades after that speech, a series of controversies around EU institutions funding Muslim Brotherhood-adjacent organisations have highlighted the Brotherhood's influence in Europe. We tried to stay light on acronyms today, but we mentioned FEMISO a few times, and I think that's a good case study here. FEMISO is the Forum of European Muslim Youth and Student Organisation, quite the mouthful. It's one of those glossy organisations that has a fantastic website, they get plenty of visibility in Brussels, but it's also an organisation that has very strong ties with the Brotherhood's web of different organisations in Europe. So, to cover this issue, we have invited Florence Bergeau-Blaclair. She's an anthropologist for the CNRS, who has been working on those issues for the last few decades and just released in French, Le Frérisme et ses réseaux, L'Enquête, which translates in English, as the Brotherhood and its networks and investigation. On the other side of the line, we are very glad to have Tommaso Vigili. Um, Tommaso is a postdoc researcher at the WZB Social Center in Berlin, where he works on modernization movements within Islam in response to the challenge of fundamentalism. He also co-authored in 2021 a report on the Brotherhood in Europe entitled Network of Networks, the Muslim Brotherhood in Europe. Now, before we move on, I am very glad to announce that we have partnered up with one of the best organizations covering EU politics, and that's WhatsApp EU. WhatsApp EU is a fantastic newsletter which follows all the policy and political development in EU politics. Take, for example, all the conversations we had on this podcast on trade, for example. Well, WhatsApp EU will walk you through the inner workings of policymaking and all the horse trading that goes behind it. It's trusted by hundreds of journalists, policymakers, diplomats all across the world. And if you need to follow what happens in Brussels, or if you're just very curious to understand what's going on, subscribing to WhatsApp EU is hands down the best thing you can do. The link to subscribe is in the description. And stay tuned because we will be working with them on a regular basis to get a lot of our audio conversations transcribed in written form. So stay tuned for that. The link to subscribe is in the description below. 
As always, please rate and review on Common Decency on whatever platform you're using, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We haven't had much reviews lately. So if you could take a few seconds now, write a review. Don't worry, I'll still be here. Take a few seconds. Three, two, one. Thank you so much. Now, if you want to listen to the full episode, where we go into how bad things are in Brussels, you know, around all those issues of Islamism and the influence of Muslim Brotherhood, it's quite a stark conversation, and we kept that for our Patreon supporters. So if you like the show, you've been here around for a very long time, you can support the podcast for as little as five euros a month, and essentially get twice as much uncommon decency content every week for that price. And also make sure that we can keep growing and make cool partnerships and even maybe host events down the road. Plenty of great ideas we have down the road. We're very ambitious, and your help could really make a difference here. Now, guys, I think we're ready. On to the show. I thought before we got into the meat of the topic... Um, I wanted to know why both of you decided to write on this topic. Is there kind of a story behind it? Florence, it seems it seems like something happened for you to want to write on this specific topic. I, my first encounter with the Muslim Brothers was uh, 30 years ago. Uh, I was a student preparing a master in anthropology in the University of Bordeaux. And I did not know, of course, that the mosque I was visiting belonged to the Muslim Brothers. It was very seldom at, uh, at this time. And immediately I felt very strongly that they wanted me to work with them, to work for them, and as converted, if possible. Um, well, I never converted, but uh, I still study them. And my specialty all, all this time has been the study of the Islamic normativities in Europe. I've spent many years to study the global halal market, which is for me one of the most powerful vehicles of the Islamic fundamentalist norms in all sectors, consumption, culture, economy. And Tomaso, is there also a bit of a life story? Um, did you try? Did the Muslim Brotherhood try to recruit you as well, or was there? Was no, there different, different no. Uh, until now, no, but <laughs> never say never. <laughs> I come from a legal background, and I have been interested for quite a while on the issue of individual liberties within Islam, and also uh, Islamic reformers, outgroups from Muslim communities. And the Muslim Brotherhood emerged as a group that can be uh, threatening, actually, uh, outgroups of minorities from Muslim communities, as well as reformer Muslims. And later on, I, I have investigated into the matter of the Muslim Brotherhood while working in a think tank in Brussels devoting to preventing radicalization because the ideology promoted by the Muslim Brotherhood can be a vehicle of radicalization. And that's why uh, I have tried to deepen an issue which is very intricate, actually. Mm -hmm. So let's get started. Um, Tommaso, can you walk us briefly through the history of a Muslim Brotherhood? No need to do a, you know, uh, exhaustive uh, academic work, but kind of briefly, who are they? What are the key principles? What is the agenda? And how, how did they transform the Muslims' world approach to their own faith in the 
uh, nearly 100 years of existence. Yes, uh, I think you are familiar with Hassan al-Banna, mm -hmm. who founded the movement in Egypt in 1928. I think what's interesting to know about them, which is also relevant for the present day, is the fact that uh, Hassan al-Banna conceived the movement as a reaction against the Western contamination. Um, we are... We are in a, in a period of the Arab history that was actually coming from intense reforms, both at the political level and, the, and also at the theological level. And Hassan al-Banna was seeing a threat of westernization in the Muslim lands. So the way he conceived this movement was as a totalitarian movement, and I use totalitarian in the etymological sense of the term, so a movement that should embrace every aspect of the member's life, from sport to friendship to family yeah. to uh, work, in order to preserve the purity of Islam. And how? what was the final goal, first of all? The final goal was what is known as Tamkin, the application of the uh, Sharia, uh, to the state, to the world state, uh, so the creation basically of a world caliphate, but this was to be reached gradually by a sort of pincer move, on the one hand from bottom up, so uh, the building up of the Islamic society, starting with the purification of the individual, passing through the family, reaching the level of the state, the Islamic state, then a federation of Muslim states, and finally the world caliphate. And at the same, at the same time, a um, top-down approach. So infiltrating the main state institutions, economy, university, in order to facilitate um, this process. Now, I think uh, another, another aspect I would like to stress is that in that moment, Hassan al-Banna was fighting as much the elite and also the traditional clergy that was seen as not involved enough in political issues and too much sort of dispersed into threefolds, into the blind imitation of certain rules that were not actually effective in implementing this model. And this is something we also find in present-day brotherhoods. So this sort of tacticism. And the very final thing is that Hassan al-Banna did not issue from jihad. In his letter to jihad, he says clearly that offensive jihad, not the spiritual struggle, is the, uh, is the best prize for the good Muslims. And he has to use it every time Muslims are subjugated by infidels. Mm -hmm. So this is something that should be remembered as well. Florence, any thoughts on the ideology of a Muslim Brotherhood and what stays of it today, nearly 100 years later? Well, I agree with what uh, uh, Tommaso said exactly. Um, the, the thing is that this movement has transformed over the time and have uh, adapted their strategy uh, depending on their, if they are in Muslim country or in non-Muslim country. Mm. And uh, in my latest book, I was interested by the non-Muslim country uh, uh, brotherhood strategy and I define it as frérisme in French which is like ikhwani or uh, brotherism if you want mm. uh, and I define this as a transnational movement that wants to conquer the world 
and therefore non-Muslim countries by first making it Sharia compatible. Um, its strategy of implantation and extension is different from that of uh, Islamist groups in uh, Muslim countries. It is primarily based on culture, economy, in a globalized world dominated by the ideologies of free trade and inclusiveness. Uh, the doctrine of uh, this movement is the wasatiya, or the, the Islam of the Middle Way, if you if you want, which was uh, theorized by Youssef al-Kardawi, which is mm. a very important figure of the, the Muslim Brotherhood. And the, the Sheikh was inspired by the founder of Muslim Brotherhood, Hassan al-Banna, of course, but also by Abul Alam Maududi, who was the what, what I call the engineer of the system Islam. Um, the, the Brotherhood is not a, a, a theological or legal school. They are not very good theologians. Uh, they are strategic. And so they, they, they have built what I call a, a system of action. Um, we want to steer the various theological and legal components of Sunni Islam from a middle position to fulfill the ultimate prophecy of the establishment of the caliphate on earth. The, the brotherhood um, used the skills and the specificities of each of the schools, Wahhabo, Salafi, Jihadi, Sufi, liberal, to redirect them towards the objective by, as, uh, as Thomas said, infiltrating the environments in order to modify uh, from the inter interior, their DNA. It works very methodically by plans, and um, it acts mostly within the framework of democratic laws. So we will go um, in a second into the Muslim Brotherhood in Europe specifically, but I just wanted to flag this to our listeners. This is a very interesting conversation on the history of not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but also the kind of Islamist uh, universe and um, our long-time listeners will remember this but we interviewed on our fourth episode in, in October 2020 uh, Gilles Kebel who actually wrote the foreword of your book uh, Florence. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, a very detailed historical analysis on the Islamist movement starting again you know in Egypt and uh, uh, with Albana, Al-Qurdawi, uh, uh, Maududi, all those kind of different, different characters and it's a fascinating story and uh, if you want to listen more about this, you can tune into our fourth episode, France's Islamist Poison with Gilles Kepel. Um, moving on. Yes, and, and in fact, there is almost a, an ironic um, a coincidence here in the fact that uh, Florence's book was uh, widely popular in France. And Tommaso, you were commissioned to write uh, a report uh, for a political group that lacks a French party. So in, in a sense, you're sort of You've been covering the entire European space with your respective works. But on that uh, report, which you were uh, commissioned to write by the European Conservatives and, and Reformist Party in, in, in Brussels, Tommaso, mm -hmm. you speak of a starfish model um, by which you, you seem to mean that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood has different sort of tentacles and different organizations and charities and NGOs across the continent. Can you tell us a little bit more about what those organizations do? Uh, what are their names? What are their leaders? And what can you tell us about them? 
Well, first of all, the expression is not mine, it's by Mohamed Louisi, who is a French former member of the Brotherhood that has left the organization and has spoken out about the structure of the organization. And with Starfish, it means a, a radical difference compared to the initial model of the Brotherhood established by Hassan al-Banna, which was a highly hierarchical model, sort of pyramid, where you have the supreme guide at the top, a guidance bureau, bureau uh, below the supreme guide, and then a, a series of offices starting from the center towards the periphery. And Luisi called this model, uh, equates this model to a spider web, where you have a spider in the mid of the net that controls all the uh, parts of the net. But these, uh, this model was somehow dangerous because if you cut the head of the spider, then the movement dies. Mm. The starfish that Mohamed Luisi speaks about denotes a model where you have different arms that are linked uh, to each other by a common ideological mindset, by financial ties, by family ties. But then, as Florence said, each arm acts independently and is very much adapted to the local reality. So mm -hmm. uh, this helps to reach the goal in a better way, but also helps to preserve the organization. Because if in one country, uh, one organization is banned, still the others can continue to operate. Now. The structure of the Muslim Brotherhood in Europe. Uh, Lorenzo Vidino speaks basically about three levels of MB presence in Europe. You have the official members, the sworn members of the Muslim Brotherhood. You might be familiar with the international organization of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was headed by Ibrahim Munir until his death in the UK. And this is the official representative of the Brotherhood. Now, there are apparently contrasts between these and the main headquarters in Cairo. We don't know how staged or how real they are, but still, this is an officially Brotherhood uh, organization. Then we have spin-offs. Spin-offs are those organizations that have been founded by Brotherhood members or by the FIOE, which is the Federation of Islamic Organization in Europe that now is called Council of European Muslims, and that Munir himself has, uh, has called the representative of the Brotherhood in Europe. And then you have a plethora of different organizations that are tendentially more recent and that, that are not directly traceable to Brotherhood members, but in which you can find as member of boards, people affiliated or linked somehow to the Brotherhood, you can find uh, the pursuit of similar goals or the reference to similar topics, mm. the bail, Islamophobia, Palestine. So that there, is a, there are some slogans that are repeated throughout the, uh, the organization that somehow belong to this galaxy. Um, you were asking me some names. One very famous one for sure is Islamic Relief. Mm -hmm. We have Islamic Relief Worldwide, which is the global entity. And then we have different national branches of Islamic Relief. We have FEMISO dealing with issues of young Muslims in Europe. 
uh, we have the European Council for Fatwa Research based at the European Cultural Center of Ireland that issues fatwas uh, and it is officially followed in his scholarship by national uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated entities such as I come from Italy, I could make the example of the UCOI, Unione delle Comunità Islamiche Italiane. Um, and then we have uh, Musulman de France in, mm. in France. So each, each state has its own local branches. Uh, this Council of European Muslims is sort of the coordinator of all these branches. And then we have Institute of Scholarship, such as, for example, uh, the Institute in Chateau Chinon, um, that is sort of the university preparing the uh, intellectual landscape of the Muslim Brotherhood in Europe. Mm -hmm. Florence? Uh, yes, um, well, I would say that, um, um, yes, of course, there, there, there are uh, secret groups of uh, entitled uh, Muslim Brothers. They are not very numerous. For example, in France, it's probably a few thousands of uh, uh, Muslim Brothers. And they are uh, usually um, part of the, the institutions that Tommaso was talking about, uh, Musulman de France, uh, FEO, and um, Islamic Relief, FEMISO, and so on. Um, but um, I distinguish myself uh, more subcontractants and allies. Um, Muslim Brotherhood is powerful because, because of is some subcontractors uh, for example, they have a link with uh, Wahhabo Salafi, uh, and it, it gives uh, today the Frero Salafist, um, I don't know how to say that, um, which is a, a type of hybrid between Salafist and, uh, and, and, and Brotherhood, mm. and who is very efficient in the low uh, part of the, 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 the social uh, uh, social landscape, the, 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 the people who are not very educated around Paris, around mm. suburbs and, and so on. Um, they, they subcontract also to uh, some um, brothers who are not entitled uh, in, in the university, who are their relay in the, in the educations. They also have allies, uh, allies in the in the left left wing parties, uh, who, um, um, who display uh, their 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 theory, their their, their ideology. Uh, so it is um, yes, of course, it, it is well structured, but the structures themselves are not very efficient. They, they mm -hmm. need uh, they need to enter in the NGOs landscapes of each country. And a, a way to enter in these landscapes is to go through the uh, anti-racist network, yeah. which is very important. For example, uh, ENAR, uh, the, the European, European Network Against Racism, for me is a, a, a very efficient brotherhood institution, even if it's not uh, official brotherhood institution. Yeah. Uh, it is a, it's very very powerful near the commission to enter the ID of the uh, the brotherhood. Um, so it is it's much more wide. 
uh, than we, we can imagine. The, the, the influence is very is very strong because it's trickery, it's victimization, it's subversions of the norms, of the interpretations of laws, uh, and they, they work by uh, plans, as I said, because it is a religious movement, yeah. not just a political movement. So they believe in the end of the world, in the end of the history, they believe is in the last judgment, they believe in heaven and hell, and all this... Uh, uh, this um, uh, representation of the world is is uh, the vision, uh, the, the 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 vision, the history, uh, the the past, um, the identity they shared, and it's very it's much more wide than the structure of the uh, the Muslim Brotherhood itself. Mm-hmm. And uh, before we move on, I just wanted to, on on an aside. I was as I was preparing the recording this week, I was reading your your report, Tomaso, and when I saw that um, among the uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliates organization, there was the ECFR. My heart stopped because obviously for me, as a kind of uh, follower of the European news, the ECFR is obviously the European Council for Foreign Relations and not the European Council for Fatwa <laughs> and Research. Um, so, um, uh, but moving on, I think we talked a little bit about it and I think we need to, to dive into it because we can't avoid it too much because over the past few months, and one of the reasons I know this topic is on my mind, is there's been a series of scandals over either EU campaigns that seem to be aping the Muslim Brotherhood's rhetoric on, on, on Islamophobia, for example, or there were scandals over how institutions were funding organisations that were linked with the Muslim Brotherhood, with the organisation of panels that were you know, sharing things which are textbook Muslim Brotherhood rhetoric. All of this sparked significant outrage, especially in Paris, where the uh, Macron government got quite angry of them. Um, first of all, Florence, could you give us some examples of these controversies? And actually, how are they allowed to occur? How is it possible for the EU to fall uh, hook and sink into that kind of Muslim Brotherhood rhetoric? Yeah, it's true that there has been uh, interrogations around some campaigns meant to enhance and protect the European diversity of culture and religion, and especially those who present the Islamic veil or hijab in a very modern and attractive way, uh, very different of the reality shown by Iran today. And one campaign uh, has attracted uh, the attention of French. It was a joint work of the Council of Europe and the European Union, which was uh, apparently funded 340,000 euros. It was launched in October 2021 in preparation of the Islamophobia Day that the Council establishes uh, each year on uh, 26th of September. And uh, at that time, the Council and the EU were sponsoring initiatives for uh, equality and citizenships called uh, against hate speech mm-hmm. and for that they provide they provided organizations and young activists uh, media toolkits that was uh, aiming to help them organizing thematic seminars uh, against hate speech they, they were coaching them in organizing communication campaign promote tolerance and fight hate speech and um, this uh, this uh, this type of campaign has been uh, uh, 
uh, the, the, has been used by the FEMISO, which is the the, the, the organization of Muslim Brother uh, of Youth Muslim Brother, mm-hmm. uh, was a regular link and meeting with the Council of Europe, and it has used these tools and training to promote its agenda. And it is very clear in the upper list of its agenda is the fight against Islamophobic gender discrimination. And what do they mean by gender discrimination? Is for example, to refuse the, the, the veil everywhere and always. When one state like France forbids the hijab at schools, it is considered by them as structural Islamophobia, and it is considered as hate speech. Mm. So they have used the money to communicate a campaign which clearly promotes the hijab, associate with very positive values like joy, freedom, against state and against the French state. Um, so and this is uh, generally speaking the anti-racist and the anti-radicalization networks of the NGOs in Europe are widely infiltrated by the Brotherhood, who seek to impose the idea of mistreatment of Muslims in Europe. And uh, when they do that, that has consequences because then they, they can promote special rights for Muslims and positive discrimination for them. Um, Tommaso, just um, on that, um, if you have any more examples of such campaigns, it's going to be very interesting to get your thoughts on it. But I think more generally, why do you think that European institutions fall for that kind of trap? Is it because they don't know? Is it because they are naive? Is it how is it that, or is it just that the Muslim Brotherhood is very, very smart in its tactical approach to these institutions? How do we explain that it seems to fall, you know, especially the very liberal institutions that end up falling for very reactionary organizations? I'm so sorry. It's not Tommaso. It's me again. Just want to let you know, we are now moving to the Patreon only section. So if you want to hear Tommaso's very insightful response to why institutions tend to fall for those traps laid out by the Muslim Brotherhood, you'll have to join us for our Patreon conversation. But it's a great way for you to essentially get twice as much content for as little as five euros a month. It's a great way to support the show and have extra content every week. So, Jorge, Florence and Tommaso are out for this riveting conversation on quite a a bleak topic. What did you make of it? Well, um, well, I think many things. I mean, um, um, there's certainly at the heart of this matter, there's the, the, the noxious interplay between Islamism and woke ideology, which has been, uh, you know, two very strange, a very strange pair of bedfellows. Uh, but it's a pair of bedfellows about which we wrote uh, a piece, one of our uh, very first uh, forays into public writing as as podcast hosts, we wrote a piece uh, back towards, uh, I believe, October 2020. Yeah. Uh, it was called The Woke Islamist Axis Against Free Speech. And it, it essentially uh, uh, defended France uh, and sort of the secular, hyper-secular model of laicite from the accusations of the New York Times and other such left liberal media that uh, France was somehow Islamophobic. Uh, so we defended France. We said, you know, 
actually France uh, imposes uh, the fact that the public square, the public square should be neutral. No religion should have uh, sort of a, a hold on it. Um, and um, and uh, it was a very sort of um, visionary piece we wrote because throughout the entire following year, it was a sort of a, an on and off topic the whole time with the assassination of Samuel Paty, but also the uh, the uh, project, the the law against separatism that Macron's yeah. government pushed uh, through. So, um, so in a way, we've we, with this episode with Florence and Tommaso, we have reconnected with a long, uh, dormant focus of our podcast, which yeah. is the which is this no, this notion that secularism is under threat, uh, and and the values uh, upon which the European Union itself is based are also under threat and. Paradoxically, I mean, I really appreciated the the, the detail of Tommaso's uh, expose about the all of these sort of uh, different te tentacles of the Muslim Brotherhood and how they've managed to uh, appear palatable by the European institutions. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, super interesting. There's a lot to go on, and you're right. Actually, this is something we've been covering quite a lot early on in the podcast, and we didn't do quite as much recently. Um, but it's a topic that really interests me. I took a lot of courses on that. Um, I remember once I had an exam at, uh, for my undergrad and I couldn't remember for the life of me the name of Hassan al-Banna. Mm -hmm. and, and it was scratching my head. And in the end, I ended up writing the grandfather of Tariq Ramadan uh, <laughs> because I knew Tariq Ramadan is this, this kind of Swiss preacher who you know, is the kind of Muslim Brotherhood space um, and he, you know, controversially is a grandson of Hassan al-Banna, but I couldn't remember Hassan al-Banna's name. So I wrote on my sheet of paper for grandfather Tariq Ramadan, and I got the points for that, and I was so happy. Um, but yeah, a good memory. Um, I want to go back on something very early on when they were talking about Hassan al-Banna, um, which I thought was really interesting, is Hassan al-Banna in his life has at some point goes to America. And it's actually quite a kind of westerner quite you know looks towards the west as a, as a future rest of it but he goes to america and he's actually quite shocked by what he sees by you know the, the liberal values he sees you know the kind of lack of you know the individualism and all that stuff deeply shocks him and he comes back saying there's no way this is going to happen to us and it really struck me because i was reading or really reading an article that came out in palladium a few years ago about this uh, chinese advisor of uh xi jinping called wang huning and the article says basically exactly the same thing. He goes to America. He gets um, a scholarship to go and study in America. And he is deeply shocked by what he sees. Um, some of actually what Wang Huning wrote is quite, uh, you know, he writes this in 1988 and writes a book in 1991 called America Against America. And he talks about the homeless encampments in uh, D.C., the crime in poor black neighborhoods in New York. Um, now, some of this unfortunately hasn't changed, but he is tr traumatized by what he sees in America. Goes back to China saying, We will take what we can take from the United States, but we can never become them. So I just find it really interesting how a lot of these, a lot of people who end up being the intellectuals behind, uh, you know, anti liberal movements often have this kind of bitter disappointment with, um, with liberalism. Um, on this topic specifically of the, of, um, for Muslim Brotherhood, it's such a tricky topic because this is what the West Muslim Brotherhood has done. I don't like the word Islamophobia, but let's l use it here for the sake of the argument. 
I think it exists. You know, I think it's a case. There's, there's uh, examples of violence. There was an attack against a mosque in Bayonne a few years ago. So that stuff exists. But the genius of a Muslim Brotherhood is using um, those concepts to protect themselves from any criticism um, and using it as a wedge issue. And that's what we're talking about it when saying there's, there's obviously no full rarely formal links between Muslim Brotherhood and between more radical organization organizations, but usually there is going to be kind of a intellectual uh, connection that's going to go on because if you're going to push this narrative that Muslims in Europe are under assault, they are going to be, you know, you know, some of them will push narratives like there's a, there's a genocide of, of Muslims that's going to come in Europe or something. When you push that kind of rhetoric, I understand why a young Muslim, if you know, gets that rhetoric all the time, would get deeply resentful towards the host countries and end up, you know, not all of them, of course, but some of them will end up, you know, making the conclusion that if they're about to be attacked, well, they need to attack first or they need to be ready to fight back. Um, so it's an immensely bleak situation. And, I, and, and I'm shocked at how uh, naive or inconsequential um, a lot of the uh, uh, civil servants at the European level are allowing this to happen. They, they're giving money to these organizations. You know, these organizations that are encouraging lapidation, that are or maybe not encouraging, but they're justifying lapidation and justifying female genital mutilation. And surely that's for one thing we as Europeans should all be able to agree on. Female genital mutilation is horrendous. They should not be allowed any any circumstances. Same thing for lapidation. And yet, just because we are afraid of the image that's going to give of us, we refuse to take a stand for very basic liberal values. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, I was also very uh, flattered by the fact that just before we went into the recording, Tommaso mentioned that he had uh, read a piece I'd written last week mm -hmm. about uh the throat slitting of a priest in Algeciras yeah. uh, on Wednesday, two weeks, well, actually uh, almost two weeks ago in, in sort of the, the southernmost outpost of Algeciras, which is just a half hour boat ride away from Morocco. Yeah. There was this uh, radicalized, self-radicalized uh, Islamist that went out uh, with a machete yeah. uh, clad in a sort of jalaba and uh uh, sort of got, got into a fight with a priest and ended up slitting his throat in a yeah. public square in sort of in the open air, videotaped by onlookers. And um, and again, I think the media has um, the media has in, uh, indulged in just this, the, the very problem you've just outlined, Francois, this fear, this gripping fear of being labeled Islamophobic. Yeah. which uh which uh which uh, takes you in very unexpected directions i mean yeah. the the media most of the sort of left liberal media that have, that have been reporting on this story uh, in spain have failed entirely to connect the uh the attack with the islamic faith of the attacker uh and i think it's something that most europeans and most uh spaniards uh see as plainly evident yeah absolutely um, be, before we move on to the you know usual end of the episode, um, we just wanted to make a, a short statement. Um, we had a guest who uh, refused to come on the show. Those things happen. Usually sometimes guests are busy or have last minute events. That happens. But um, this time, he, the, the guest we wanted to invite, uh, after saying yes in first place, 
came back to us saying he decided not to do this because he thought the podcast had links to a specific partisan political ideology that ran counter to what he believed in. We're not going to say who it is, if it's not relevant, but we want to take this opportunity to make a few things clear. First of all, we are not a partisan political podcast. We have no ties with any political organization. We are not funded by anyone except by the people who back us on Patreon. That's it. We have no partisan political agenda here. We individually have our own political opinions. And if you've been listening to the podcast, I'm, I'm sure maybe you're, you're able to guess where we stand. But And I'm sure if you've been listening to us a long time, you'll also recognize that it has never stopped us from thinking clearly and objectively on all kinds of different issues. And we've always treated our guests with the utmost respect and hopefully professionalism as well. And also, I think it's worth reminding everyone, there's three of us now. We don't agree on everything. We're not a monolith. You know, we don't have a, 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 a chart of values where we have to agree on everything from taxation to immigration to the war in Ukraine. We have our differences. Um, going forward, we will continue to talk to people from a wide of range of opinions and backgrounds. You know, I was talking about, say, with some friends, but if, if, if I get the opportunity to invite, for example, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, uh, and to talk about his view, vision for Europe, I would absolutely love to do that. It'd be fantastic. In the same way, if we get the opportunity to get, I don't know, Victor Orban, for example, it'd be super interesting conversation. We would have those conversations. Um, lastly, we are not a confrontational podcast. We are not a debate podcast. I don't think, and I think we agree on that, I don't think it's the best medium to do those kind of debates and conversations um, on a podcast format. But we respect all of our guests. And when we have disagreements with them, which is often the case, um, we, we, would we will voice them at the end in the outro where we make our own voice heard and make it clear that we were you know, simply interviewing someone that did not mean we shared everything that person was saying. Um, I'm, I'm sure this wasn't necessary. Maybe it was, but we just want to make that clear in case uh, any of you or any future guests had that question lingering on in the back of their head. Point taken. Understood. So, moving on, if you like this episode, if you like Uncommon Decency, there's a, a whole host of things you can do to help us. You can, first of all, uh, like the show uh, on, on Spotify, for example, give it a good review. You can share it with friends. You can share it on social media. There's so many quick things. And if you're feeling, feeling especially generous, and if you want more Uncommon Decency content, you can support us on Patreon. There's different price ranges with different wonderful advantages, including essentially doubling the amount of Uncommon Decency content you can get a week. Please feel free to do so. You can get, for example, the other half of the conversation we had with Florence and Tommaso for this week if you join us. Thank you so much, Jorge. Thank you. And thank you, Tommaso and Florence. And we say to all of you, see you next week. See you next week. <laughs>